15 years ago when Rob and I started writing about synchronicity, you know, I would ask people just randomly at the dog park, hey, do you know what synchronicity is? No. Do you know what coincidence is? Oh, sure, that's when blah, blah, blah. Now it's much different. Now people are more willing to talk about their own experiences, which has changed a lot, you know, in the last decade. So the fact that so many people were so willing to share their stories with us, really, for me, meant something's changing. Right now on Higher Journeys with Alexis Brooks. Well, hello, journeyers. Welcome to Higher Journeys. I am your host, Alexis Brooks, and I am so excited that you're joining me today because I've got, look, every show I do is fun. It's a ball. You can probably tell because I'm, I'm always smiling, but when I get to have a good friend on like Trish McGregor, it's double fun. And Trish is just a buddy. We were actually on the phone yesterday, Trish. How long? About hour and a half, maybe two. And my husband said, you know, you could have done the show yesterday. Forgive me, journeyers. My microphone wants to fall. So I'm just going to tighten this up just a tad. You know, we family here, so we can just be relaxed. Yeah. So Trish and I were on the phone just talking about everything. Nothing. Well, we talked about your book, which we're going to talk about today, latest book, but just we covered so many areas. But one of the big things that we talked about, which we're going to go into today, has to do with the title of Trish and Rob McGregor's latest book, which is called, and by the way, Rob, shout out to Rob. Trisha's other half isn't feeling too well today, so he opted out of our conversation. But Trisha's going to hold the hold the hold the floor down. Their latest book is called "The Shift Reports from the Mystical Underground," which, by the way, "Mystical Underground" is also the name of Trish and Rob McGregor's amazing podcast. So, lots to get into, guys. But I want to start with the shift. Trisha, are you with me? Are you with me? That little thing here just fell. <laughs> okay. All right. We're just going to let it let it all hang out. Wherever it goes, it goes. We want to talk about the shift, something that is on the lips, hearts, and minds of a lot of people these days, the proverbial shift. What is it? A lot of people are trying to tackle it, particularly from a metaphysical perspective, but this book is called Trish, The Shift. I would like to know for you who and Rob, who have written so many books, in areas of high strangeness. What was the true impetus for your writing this book, The Shift? It was what we learned from people we had on our podcast. You know, it's each of these guests had a different type of experience, uh, but most of them involved synchronicity. So that was the, that was the impetus. Okay. But the shift, this is the key. You, what you did was you married two very, very big concepts. Right. One is replete throughout history, and that is what we call high strangeness, areas uh, of anomalous experience of which we all have, I contend, uh, all the time, and something that has not happened perhaps in our human history. And that is what we're calling this absolute paradigm shift, perhaps in a planetary shift, yes, but a shift in humanity. You married those two in this book, and that's kind of where I'm going with this. How did you bring those two together? Um, you can, well, one thing, you, you could feel it. You know, there there is something that's shifting within humanity, I think. And in some ways, I think of it as that famous Buffalo Springfield song, you know, from the late 60s. You sense that something important is happening, that a shift is underway. 
but how do you find it and what does it mean really for each of us and for humanity? The song from the 60s addressed the big societal changes that were taking place in the 1960s as a result of the Vietnam War, Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the Civil Rights Movement, the Space Race, the music of the Beatles, Woodstock, the assassination of JFK, all of that. And now it's more subtle, I think. There are more and more people opening up to alternative realities, which actually may be the real reality. <laughs> um, it, it's like people are waking up to their human potential. Does that help? Does that explain it? <laughs> Absolutely. I Well, I agree with you. Uh, and perhaps that was a bit of a leading question because look, you and I have talked about this so many times, all of the things I, it, my audience knows I've said this since particularly since the beginning of the pandemic. I feel we're living in a metaphysically potent time, which means that all things anomalous, and when you say metaphysical and anomalous are not necessarily uh, one and the same, and yet they tend to go hand in hand. And my absolute sense, Trish, from the very beginning of this is that we were somehow planetarily and individually uh, consciously moving into some swimming in a metaphysical sea of experience. And your book, I think, bears that out. For, for sure, really. And that's why I'm saying it's very, two very, some might say very distinct things. That being people having more, uh, I want to use another word beside anomalous, uh, profound experiences that seem to be outside of the 3D, bringing it in. They're paying attention, it seems more, and they're acting on it. Well, I also think that COVID gave people time, you know, to really examine what they were doing, what where their life was headed, you know, what their educate, what kind of education, what their profession was, and did, are they, were they happy, you know? And I think that's that was the breather, you know, that set things in motion. Agreed, I do. I'm, I'm reminded of an article I read. I don't know. We were about a year in at that point, and I can't remember the publication that did it. But the headline was: uh, People are looking up in the sky more and seeing more anomalous objects, i.e., UFOs. And and it was really all about: Could it be that they have more time to look up now, or are there more anomalous things going on, or both? So yeah, right. that's been acknowledged even by the mainstream to, yeah, to some I mean, extent. You know, they're they're studying UFOs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they denied for years. Absolutely. Well, you know, actually, Tony Harris and I from The Proof is Out There just discussed that, that, uh, of course, there was this big UFO congressional hearing back, I believe, in May, which we both acknowledged was a whole bunch of nothing for what all of us got to uh, right. to, to witness. And yet there was this uh, closed door session, uh, which could have also been a whole bunch of nothing. They may have just said that to T. I don't know. But I had said to Tony, it's not so much what was said, but the fact that they're saying that they're, try that they're trying or something is trying to move us closer to the reality, not the anomaly, but the reality of the, I won't say new normal. Paranormal is <laughs> not para at all. It's quite normal. And now we're finally maybe going to get to see that in action. So let's talk about the catalyst, your first chapter, which brought me, um, you guys, this book is freaking amazing. Yeah, no, no surprise. Trish and Rob just do stellar work when it comes to this this sort of subject area. But the catalyst was a great way to start off this book, Trish, because it really kind of punctuates your message of the shift being uh, happening, but being underscored by these catalyzing events 
-hmm. Oftentimes they are somewhat paranormal um, in order to shift the the consciousness of the individual. That's what we're really talking about here. So tell me about uh, the catalyst, you know, here's what you said. You described it as a key event that alters your life and leads to a new way of perceiving reality. In essence, it's a personal shift in consciousness. Right. Elaborate on that. Novels, movies, stories, there's always a catalyst that sets off the events. Okay. And in fact, Jessica Brody, who wrote uh, Save the Cat, writes a novel telling people how what they need to include in their novel. She says, the catalyst will crash land in your hero's life and create so much destruction, your hero, your hero will have no choice but to do something different, try something new, go somewhere else. So think about that in terms of each of us being the protagonist of our own story. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to have you do one little thing, if you will. I had to do it too. Can you turn off your email? Because that ding! Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I did it too, guys. Sorry. We, While she's doing that, I have to bring this up. Digress for a minute. How many times, guys, have you been perhaps listening to a show like this or maybe watching TV and you hear that familiar ding and you're looking at your own computer going, is that me? It's like if you talk about a catalyst, that's a trigger for you. Yeah, it really is. Okay. How do I turn that off? <laughs> oh, if you have a Mac, all you have to do is go to the bottom bar hold down on the mail icon and see where it says quit and you quit. Oh, all right. Okay, good. How about that? Okay. <laughs> so while she's doing that, I'm going to go into um, the areas that, that Trish and Rob cover in this book, you guys, as per, per, I would say usual for what they do is they're very comprehensive. We're talking about anomalies of reality as catalyzers for the shift. They cover in the book, synchronicity and precognition, of course. I call them the dynamic duo of, of, of these areas. <clears throat> Excuse me, UFOs and the ET phenomenon, out-of-body experiences, afterlife, and survival of consciousness. We're actually going to talk about one of which Robert Bigelow is involved in this subject area. Again, kudos for taking such a broad swath of, of, of areas of interest and boiling it down to one theme of being that really the catalyzer right. for the the personal and collective shift. Let's get into one of the stories. We're gonna we're gonna highlight three stories today, guys, that are in the book, and maybe fold them all together in the end. But one that really got to me that was really scary. I felt like I was watching or reading a novel. Is the story of Andy Paquette, who uh, is this gentleman that you've interviewed, I believe, on your show, right. who has been keeping dream journals for years. But I think the impetus for his uh, knowing how powerful his dreams were was one that took place in Amsterdam. Tell us about Brace yourself, you guys. This is heavy. Tell us about Andy's story. And Andy, dream. this kind of, it not only started his dream journals, but it changed his life. Because until this happened, he was a complete skeptic about anything paranormal. So he was living in Amsterdam. This is a number of years ago. And he had a dream in which two men came up behind him. One flanked him on the right the other moving along behind him. And they wanted him to go into an alley that was less than 100 yards away so they could rob him without being seen. And he couldn't run because to the left there was a brick wall and he couldn't run right because one of them was at his side. Running forward would take him closer into the alley. Now this dream was incredibly detailed. And he says, I decided the situation is completely out of my hands, he wrote in his dream journal. I will go into the alley, give them my money and leave. 
with any luck, they'll let me keep my passport. But he couldn't leave. As soon as he was in the alley, uh, one of the men pulled a gun and waved him to the back of the alley. It was deeper than it looked. In fact, he saw what looked like uh, a pile of rags, but it was a corpse. And he knew these guys were responsible. So his knees buckled, the two men chatted in Dutch, and the guy with the gun didn't pay any attention to him. He held the gun in his side, and Andy realized this was his opportunity to grab it. Uh, his mistake was that he hesitated. The gunman shot him, and he died in the dream. And he thought immediately of his girlfriend, Kitty, who lived in New York, and then felt his spirit leave his body. And suddenly, he found himself looking down in Kitty's apartment, or at Kitty in her mother's apartment in New York. She hadn't heard of his death yet, and he realized that thinking about her was what had brought him to another uh, apartment in New York. Um, and about being dead in this dream, he says, I can't believe it. I'm really dead. I have no idea what to do next. I feel more aware of my surroundings than I ever was when I've been alive. There isn't much to do, but it is interesting that death is not only a peaceful event, but I feel more awake when outside of my body than in it. Then he woke up in his apartment, shocked that he was still alive, as you can imagine. Even though it was 4 a.m. in Amsterdam, he called Kitty in New York. They talked about him returning to the States and getting an apartment together. So two weeks later, he went to his bank, closed out his account, and called Kitty from the post office. There were no cell phones in those days. And he continued to Amsterdam's Diamond District to pick up his one-way ticket from a travel agency. As soon as he turned south on that street, he realized it was the same street as his dream. Even the sweep of the blue sky was like he remembered it. That worried him. He had 1500 bucks in his pocket, a ticket to New York, and his passport. And then as he writes, and then a big, dark, muscular arm stretched out around my neck from behind. Hey, man, it's good to see you again. How much money you got with you? At the same time, another muscular man flanked me on the right. It was just like what had happened in his dream. So in these ensuing moments, Andy argued with himself that, it, that all this was just a coincidence. It couldn't really be happening just like the dream, could it? Because he knew this street and there was no alley. Then he noticed the scaffolding piled on the sidewalk <clears throat> and saw that it had been blocking an opening into an alley. Right then, he decided that nothing was going to get him into that alley. He lacked the physical strength to, to fight them. Uh, but he thought that he could fuse the guy behind him, the one with his arm around Andy's neck. Maybe he would relax his arm enough so he could make a break for it. <clears throat> the man, the men thought, thought Andy was a tourist, not a local. At this point, he'd been in Amsterdam for three months. So he, he knew a little Dutch. And in Dutch, he told him he'd been in Amsterdam for three years. And his money was in guilders. This seemed to puzzle him. And the man with the muscular arm around Andy's neck loosened his grip slightly. And that was all Andy needed. He shoved the man's arm away from him and raced across the street to a newsstand, shouting at the guy behind the counter that two men had just tried to mug him. When he glanced around, he saw the two men taking off down the street. He remained at the uh, newsstand a while longer, just making sure they had, they had left. And then he writes, The first half of the dream matched the event I'd experienced almost perfectly. But then the dream and the real mugging forked, exactly when I decided to change the outcome by doing something to free myself. He noted that if the dream had forked at any other point, it would be easier to argue that the dream and the experience weren't related. Instead, just like Scrooge's ghost of Christmas future vision in a, in a Christmas carol, 
I experienced a, visible, a vivid possible future as a warning. I was given an opportunity to decide for myself whether I live or die. And the crux of that decision was my ability to recognize and act as a warning, act on the warning in the dream. But the decision didn't just save my life, it changed my life. And so from here, I mean, when we had Andy on the on the podcast, he talks really fast, he's very animated, and you can tell that this thing really happened to him. This is not this is not a lie. It it, it did change his life. And um he said, after being shot in the dream, he said, I fully expected to be snuffed out like a candle, but then my soul left my body and I was still conscious. I was amazed because it was so unexpected. So after this dramatic encounter where he saves his life, he started recording his dream and now has done so for more than two decades. Hmm. His book called Dreamer, 20 Years of Psychic Dreams was published in 2011. And in the 11 years since, he's continued to record his dreams and now has more than 13,000 of them. And many of them are precognitive. Many of them are precognitive. Yeah. Well, here's, thank you. That, woo, when I read that. Yeah, it's, it's like, the book is amazing. And that's yeah. how he starts his book with this dream. With this particular dream, yeah. right, right. Well, there are a few points I want to make that I think are really, really uh, poignant. Let's start with a question. Because we think of precognitive dreams as sensing the future, the right. name of another book of yours, something that we dream about in the so-called future that that actually comes to pass in the present, it, you know, at the time that it's meant to come right. to pass. I have one that I'm not going to share for a little while, but I have plenty of them. Anyway, we think of it as something that will manifest invariably. In this case, it was similar but it did not manifest according to the dream. Would you still consider that a precognitive dream? But it did manifest like the dream. It was the same alley, same street. But not all the result was not the same. No, but he he decided he wanted to live, you know, and he realized that the dream, what was, he'd had the dream so that he could make that decision. I agree. I agree. No, I, I I'm following you, but I'm 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 going into the the layers, all the nuances of what would be considered precognition, and the intersection of precognition and also intuition, because I think there had to be some intuitive ability there in order for him to shift what was to be a precognitive dream. Do you know what I'm saying there? Yeah, well, I think what it was was shock. You know, I mean, it's like you recognize it. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. was my, you know, what am I going to do? Do I want to live or do I want to get shot? You know? Exactly. But I think the beauty, and this is where I, I would say how we can catalyze these events to shift because it obviously shifted his entire perspective on how reality works. Look at how brilliant. In other words, as long as he followed the course of his intuition, that dream was designed to steer him so that he could save yeah. his life. Right. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I had, I, I've never had a death dream like this, mm. but the fact that he, the fact that he, he recalled such detail is pretty extraordinary. I mean, I, I used to keep a dream journal, but I never got detail like that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's yeah. a pretty powerful, that's a yeah. pretty powerful dream too. If you're going to remember a dream, something like that, and and he he was so descriptive, and even the uh, uh, 
the death situation right. of leaving his body and the thought of where am, where am I or what do I do now? Mm-hmm. That brings another question. Do you think he perhaps could have been living the dream represented a parallel reality? Let's, let's look at that. Let's explore that for a little bit. Yeah, I've thought about that. I don't know. You know, I mean, a lot of times, you know, that's like you, you have an experience and it doesn't seem to fit. And yet you, you have the experience. You know what I mean? So you, you have to give it credence. Mm-hmm. I do. You have to give it credence. You have to, well. I mean, you have to acknowledge that, okay, maybe there is a parallel reality. Mm-hmm. And in that reality, perhaps he he perhaps did not. perish. Yeah. And and the only reason why I would even entertain that, I'm not saying <clears throat> that that's what's going on, but if it were to be the case, if reality works this way, he was so descriptive in not only, I, I think he talks about in the book when, when he shot the sensation of warm blood right. running down his neck, so incredibly descriptive, it pulls in all of the senses. And then this sense of his soul leaving his body, being in this sort of space of nothingness, perhaps, and saying, now what do I do? And then we hear how many times you guys reports of the recently deceased visiting a loved one and the loved one even acknowledging, you know, you know, what would be really super interesting. His girlfriend, I don't know if he's now, if they're husband and wife or what, but they are, they're married. They are. That's good. That's good. Good, good ending to the story. If she uh, happened at the time of his dream to feel his presence in New York in actuality. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, honestly, I don't remember. Um, but they are married. And I think, I mean, Andy, Andy is one of these people. He, he definitely lives in two realities. He lives in this dream world and he lives his life with his wife, you know as a writer, as a journal, you know, he keeps his dream journals, but, but his, it always seemed to me that his consciousness is, is truly is divided. The dream world, the real world. Do you see that as a healthy thing? Do you see that? How do you, how do you look at that? I think it's great. You know, it works for him. <laughs> it works for him. I Many mean, of us. well, I was just going to say, you know, if you read his book, the 20 years of dreams, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, but this this is the most powerful dream I think he's gotten. Oh yeah. Well, that was the like we said that was the that was his catalyst. The initiation of his going in this direction with his life, right? Exactly. Stunning. We are living at a time of great challenge and incredible opportunity. A time when taking life into our own hands, charting our own course, and finding our own answers is more accessible than ever before. During this time, you may be asking yourself, what am I called to do? What if I could discover not only my own inner healing power, but help others all over this planet discover theirs? We all have the ability to heal ourselves, but it takes a special approach, a unique approach. Quantum Healing Hypnosis Technique, also known as QHHT, a method developed by pioneering hypnotherapist and past life regression expert Dolores Cannon, is the approach that thousands have used and taught to access the deeper aspect of the self for healing at the core level. We all have the ability to tap into the higher self, the oversoul, 
the higher consciousness. And we have the means to help others to do the same. QHHT is designed to help the individual access the subconscious, the storehouse of all information through visualization at the deepest level imaginable, a process that Dolores Cannon discovered and refined during her decades of working with individuals from around the globe. Training with QHHT will provide the guidance and give you the tools to help others tap that incredible force within. Now you can access this exclusive training online, bringing the tools needed right to you so you can assist others in finding their own answers and achieve total healing. This is powerful and needed now more than ever. Be a part of the pioneering work and legacy of Dolores Cannon by learning QHHT. Start today by clicking on the link in the description of this show to get started. And when you do, don't forget to mention Higher Journeys to get a 10% course discount when you sign up. It's time we all take back control of our lives and chart the course for success at every level. It's time to discover the power of quantum healing hypnosis technique by helping others to help themselves. And by doing this, we are helping to heal the world. Well, you know, I think I wanted to talk about the the reincarnation story. We're going to talk about it, but I think I'm going to shift places. I want to go right into Robert Bigelow. Now, you guys know this name, right? This is the billionaire, quasi-philanthropist, UFO buff, and of late um, afterlife proof person. He's looking for proof of life after death he's been he's looking for proof that consciousness survives death well we i kind of use the terms interchangeably the survival of consciousness is proof of life after death that's essentially the same thing but yes the term survival of consciousness is what what we uh what we often use but the bottom line is this is sort of his latest thing but he has he is immersed uh and has been trish for many years in these areas of what we consider to be high strangeness and i want to first ask you where, uh, how, how did you decide to bring him into the book in terms of making your point about the shift? Mainly because look at look at everything he's been involved in. I remember years ago reading a book called Skimwalker Branch. That book totally freaked me out, <laughs> and yet Bigelow owned it. Yeah. You know, and then he ended up selling it for know, half a million dollars or something. And the guy who bought it was also a billionaire. I believe he's a real estate billionaire. Um, whose name I can't recall right this minute, but he, oh, Brandon Fugel, but he continued his own private research on the ranch to find out what this, what was really going on there, what the paranormal activity was. And in 2020, that research came to Amazon Prime as the mm-hmm. secret Skimwalker Ranch. And if you haven't seen it, do. It, it's mm-hmm. really, it's fascinating. And okay, so we also had Ralph Blumenthal, the New York Times writer on our show, because he had written a biography of John Mack. Well, it turns out that Blumenthal, in January 2021, ran a story called Can Robert Bigelow and the Rest of Us Survive Death? In smaller type under the heading was, he's offering nearly $1 million if you help him figure it out. Well, okay. The first step in Bigelow's thing was near-death experiences didn't count. I'm not quite sure why, but... That was one of the rules. And and I can't remember how many. Anyway, there are a lot of people who, first of all, you had to be approved as somebody who could submit the essay. In other words, you had to be in a field where you were researching life after death or reincarnation or something similar. 
So Rob and I had talked about, because we've done so much research into spirit contact and spirit communication, thought about writing something, but we don't have the science that he was looking for. So I suggested to my friend Carol Bowman, I said, you do have the science. You, you should submit an essay. And so she did. And I think she, she didn't win, but, oh gosh, who's the guy who won? I tended to look this up. But oh, so this was awarded? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't, I thought that was still, I thought it was still an, an uh-huh. offer that was out there that was not awarded. Okay. I believe it was awarded in August 2021. Anyway, at some point towards the end of 2021. And I cannot remember who the winner was. We'll find out. We can find out. No problem. Okay. You're familiar with. Say again. It's somebody you're familiar with whose name you'll know. Okay. I'm not going to, it'll take me a little while. We'll make sure by the time we do this in post, we'll have that answer for you. Well, that's good to hear. Well, you know, I wanted to bring his story. Excuse me, guys. And I apologize for constantly clearing my throat. I'm still dealing with these fall allergies. I wanted to bring it up, Trish, because we're right on the heels of talking about this really profound death dream of of Andy's. And although that would not constitute, obviously, proof of survival of consciousness, it is so interesting. I mean, anecdotal as it may be, these to me are the things that will get us to as close to proof as possible. The science is great, but the anecdotes cannot be refuted in in number. And I'm... Again, just think of all the deep. The thing is, skeptics will always say (laughs) anecdotes don't count. But see, that's that's just that that's just wrong. You know, in my opinion, if it's your experience, you have to own it. You know, and and explore it. That that's what the catalyst is. Would you consider Robert Bigelow a skeptic? And I'm not saying skeptic is a bad thing, but just does he fall into that category? No, skeptic. I mean, he's he's investigated too many weird things. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is an obsession. But talk talk a little bit about um, perhaps the impetus for his wanting to go into this area. It has to do with his wife, right? Yeah, his wife had died. Uh, and also, their son had committed suicide mm-hmm. in 1992, I think it was. And he had gone to George Anderson and some other mediums looking yeah. for verification. So, yeah, I mean, he, he, he was searching. And after his wife died, he started this contest. Mm-hmm. That article, by the way, was in the New York Times. I actually have a link for it uh, that you can click on below so you can read it. Uh, Robert Bigelow's name obviously has become quite synonymous with ATIP, ATIP the um, aerospace, uh, oh gosh, let's let's see what it, I used to ATIP, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. I haven't let that roll off my tongue for a couple of years. <laughs> I haven't heard too much about it recently, but I think that's what kind of put him on the map with a larger a uh, group of uh, individuals, of course, his alliance with the now late Harry right. Reid uh, and uh, Skinwalker Ranch, of which, if there's one place that I would love to go, but I'd be doing it with my fingers crossed behind my back, would be Skinwalker Ranch. You know, we did actually a whole special on Skinwalker Ranch on on the show that I participate on, The Proof is Out There, on the History Channel. And there have been several uh, really, really heavy documentaries that have been produced around this time. Uh, having to do with Skinwalker. Have you ever wanted to go, Trish? I'd love to. I think it'd be fascinating. Maybe we can hook it up. It's very hard to get on. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. uh, Did you watch the Amazon? I have not seen that, but I've heard about it. It'll make you want to go even more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
these places exist around this planet always have, you know, I've talked about the possibility of uh, energetic hotspots, sometimes called ley lines that may be existent there. Uh, we, we don't know. I mean, it's, it's really, really quite uh, complex, but irrefutable at this point that there's something pretty heavy going on there. Yeah. Let's talk about our third story. Unless there's anything else you'd like to say about Robert Bigelow. Let's, let's stand him for a minute. So I've got to figure out who this person is. And you say, I know him. Okay. Or her. How he, so he gave up the prize of a million dollars? Well, he said, I know the woman who won the third prize. Her name's Sharon Wallet. And mm-hmm. she's, a, she's a PhD. Not quite sure what her doctorate is in. But anyway, she's in this synchronicity group that I, I was a part of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she said she flew out to Nevada and accepted the prize. Hers, hers I think, was 50000 Not bad. You know, I'm not sure who won second, but we got to look that stuff up. I meant to do it today. and then I want to say people like Dean Radin, Charles Tart. No, it wasn't Tart. In fact, the people who were on the, um, the, the board were impressive. This was the panel, okay? Jeffrey Cripple, mm-hmm. okay, author and associate dean of the faculty at Rice. Leslie Keene, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher C. Green, who is a psychiatrist and forensic neurologist. Brian Weiss. Everybody knows that name. A woman named Jessica Utz, who was a professor emerita of statistics at the University of California, and Dr. Putoff, Al Putoff, who you know, he worked with through ATEP, right? And so they had they had a good panel. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it was supposed to be a twenty five thousand word essay, and Let's see what happened. We'll yeah. we'll look into it. You know, another name came to me, and then we'll we'll leave Mr. Bigelow alone for a little while. I would love to get him on the show because we're talking about someone that's had a lifelong fascination with this stuff. Let's find out where his head really is at. We'll work on that. We'll work on that. But um, oh, the individual, a name that I have not heard in recent years, but studied many years ago. I believe he's from Australia, and a man by the name of Victor Zamet, who wrote the book or did a case study on a lawyer makes the case for the afterlife. He's an attorney out of either New Zealand or Australia. And he's done some incredible research in the survival of consciousness theory. Um, Again, haven't heard his name in a long, long time. I think I have, gosh, I studied him so long ago. I remember printing out the case, the entire thesis that he did based on his research and have it in a binder still downstairs printing. I printed it out on my printer. It's about that thick and it's in a binder. So I'm going to look that up. Yeah. There's some great people that have done some amazing research. Again, a lot of it predicated on anecdotes. It's so difficult scientifically. I mean, certainly quantum physics would be the closest you might get to drawing, um, you know, a hypothesis based on a scientific model, but it's still. Well, that may be one of the reasons Bigelow chose, you know, chose to phrase this the way he did rather than allowing near-death experiencers Mm. to tell their stories. Yeah. And yet I'm sure he's interested in the anecdotes too. How could you not be and be be so vested in these subjects? That's where the riches are to me. So anyway, well, speaking of anecdotes, here's another one. Let's get into this third case of uh, what we would call reincarnation. And it has to do with Kathy and James and Chad. I'm going to let you take it away, you guys, if you're interested in stories and possible proof of reincarnation, this this would be right up there. 
Tell us about that. Um, I learned about this case, of course, through my friend Carol Bowman, who who uh, had written two books, Children's Past Lives and Return from Heaven. And during her, I think when she was writing the book or right afterwards, she started a past life forum where she collects new stories. But anyway, this woman, Kathy, came to her and and told her a story that in 1978, when she was 16, she gave birth to a son, James. She wasn't married, and after James was born, she and the husband split up. She never saw the husband again, or the boyfriend, or whatever. Um, anyway, she moved into her own apartment and completely devoted herself to caring for James. Now, she's 16 years old. Okay? <clears throat> when James was around 16 months, he started to walk, and Kathy noticed that he limped. When he tried to put weight on his left leg, he cried out in pain. Anyway, she took him to the doctor, and the x-ray showed that James had a fracture in his left leg. He also had a nodule above his right ear, so more tests were ordered. The upshot of all this is that when James was two, his body was so fragile and so assaulted by disease and chemotherapy treatments that he couldn't keep food down. In an attempt to sustain him, the doctors placed an IV in his right jugular vein. The incision left a scar on James's neck. After this round of treatments, Kathy took him home. Her life now centered around James. A few months later, James was admitted to the hospital from because he had excessive bleeding in his mouth from tumors. This is this is an awful story when you think this is only a four-year-old kid or a three-year-old kid. Um, Anyway, he, he eventually died, and Kathy, you know, being still being young, she, she, you know, was overcome by grief, but she also was determined to, to continue living her life. Um, at that point, I believe, is when she got in touch with Carol and told her the story about James. Now, after, I, I believe she got married two more times, Kathy did had several more kids. Then in 1992, she discovered she was pregnant again. The baby was delivered by C-section. While she was still groggy from anesthesia, um, a group of white coat specialists filed into her room and told her her newborn son was totally blind in his left eye. Now understand, James had a tumor behind his left eye, and before he died, he was blind. So, she also noticed that on the right side of his neck, he had what looked like a birthmark. And she remembered that James had this scar from the IV that had been in his neck feeding him. And the doc, when, she, when she called the doctor's attention to it, the doctor just said, oh, it's just a birthmark. But anyway, this is at the point where she got in touch with Carol. This is also where synchronicity comes into play. And she named this boy Chad, by the way. Later, she, well, I'm not sure how old Chad got to be, maybe five, four, something like that. And he asked if she would take him to the place they used to live. And he wanted to know if Kathy remembered the other house. He said he wanted to go there. The home he describes is the apartment where she and James had lived when he was a baby. Kathy knew she hadn't fed Chad any details about the apartment, and neither had her husband, Billy, that meant for her husband at the time, who hadn't even known James. 
and had never seen the apartment building. Um, but when Kathy asked Chad why he wanted to go there, he said, because I left you there. Now imagine this, I mean, you're, you're the, uh, the mother of this kid and he's remembering what appears to be his life as James, his brief life. Um, I don't know about that. That would blow me away. Of course. <laughs> I mean, it's Absolutely. just, uh, <laughs> anyway, so at this point, uh, it's when Kathy, I, at some point she and Carol got together and, and Carol wrote up her story and, you know, documented it. And it's just the striking similarities between James's condition of death and the corresponding marks on Chad's body. How do you explain that? Stunning. You don't. Well, the, you, there is no explanation. Well, the only explanation is there. This may be the return of James. Let me I, quick question. What was the time period between James's she, passing and Chad's being born? Okay. Chad was born in 1992. Okay. James was born in 1978 and died when he was four. So that would be what? Early 80s. 82. 82. Yeah, I think. But Chad was born in 1992, so 10 years later. 10 years. To, if that's accurate, 10 years, a decade. It would be interesting to, in the in the area of research, maybe Carol Bowman could, could talk about this, is, again, when we're looking at cases of possible return, another incarnation, in research, what would be a, a, an average time span? I've wondered that myself because I've wondered – is my mother back here? As an example, I've run into a couple of individuals, another story for another time that I have wondered about certain people. Let's just say that my mother's been gone 26 years. <clears throat> you know, um, I know that there are cases in the uh, history books of individuals that died in 9-11 and, ha and children that have come back and described their death at on September 11th. Had several, several cases like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's any given time frame, like, okay, a decade or five years. No, no, no. But it's perhaps a span. Yeah. You know, it'd just be interesting to look at the spectrum. Maybe it's a year later. Maybe it's, a, I, I don't know. I'm just saying, just curious. Just another little facet. Right. Ian, Steve, Ian Stevenson, the late Ian Stevenson, um, was obviously uh, renowned for his work in studying children's near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. And I actually documented one in my book back in 2014. But yeah, I would love to look into Carol's work even more. This is another profound case, though. Carol studied with him, and oh, mm. you know, so I mean that 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 was how she. I've got a dog here. Okay, it's okay. <laughs> um, and I I think okay, this this for Carol became a whole different facet of her work, where you have physical characteristics that go from life life. In other words, James's scars from being sick and oh, yes. all that. That's what I mean. And then, you know, the birthmarks and the, the the blind in one eye. I mean, they're just certain physical things that this Chad also brought in. Mm -hmm. Oh, the, well, that, those are the, those are really the, the hallmarks, not to yeah. mention the memory. Physical marks, I, I, covered that a bit in my work. And I have actually interviewed several uh, individuals who, on birthmarks particularly, I have one myself on my on my left uh, shoulder that I've often wondered. And actually, 
toyed with, experimented with a little bit, doing a form of uh, controlled meditation, focusing on a given birthmark in order to get insight. I, I, I actually done that years ago. No definitive, uh, no conclusive results, but I find that interesting in how physical remnants can carry over not only perhaps from one life to another, but from the dream state into yeah. the waking state. I've also studied that a bit. Individuals that have been, I have one person that gave me a story about being bitten by a snake uh -huh. in a dream and woke up with a bite mark on her arm exactly where she was bitten in the dream. It's There's a rabbit hole. <laughs> There's a rabbit hole. What was one of the favorite stories that you did for the book? Because this is based on stories from the mystical underground. There, you know, there were so many. And what I realized is that people, now people, I mean, 15 years ago when Rob and I started writing about synchronicity, you know, I would ask people just randomly at the dog park, hey, do you know what synchronicity is? No. Do you know what coincidence is? Oh, sure. That's when blah, blah, blah. Now it's much different. Now people are more willing to talk about their own experiences, which has changed a lot, you know, in the last decade. So the fact that so many people were so willing to share their stories with us, really, for me, meant something's changing. The shift. Because normally, I mean, even with alien stuff, normally people are too freaked out to, they don't have anybody to talk to, you know, and so now they'll talk, you know. So do you think that's due to, based on, you know, the premise of your book, that we are absolutely in some sort of a species-wide paradigm shift? You know, you could assign the reason why to many things we're talking, we're hearing, hearing more about in the mainstream news, there's more programming on it, or, and, or could it be based on an inner sort of yearning now, a consciousness shift to somehow know that it it's necessary to talk about? What do you think on a deeper level? I think on a deep level, it's people are waking up to the fact that you you have you need an explanation for things that have happened to you. You know, it's not enough to just say, "Oh well, yeah, maybe I was abducted." And, you, you know, it, that just doesn't work for people. Yeah, right? And, you know, it's like, okay, I, I need somebody to talk to. You know? That's what we're here for. Yeah, exactly. Journeys is here for. Because it's happening to a lot of people. A lot of things are happening to a lot of people. Trish, we're going to go over to the Patreon after show. And we're going to talk about journeyers. Please come on over and join us. We're going to talk about what you're seeing happening in 2023, speaking of the shift. Because we talked about that yesterday, did we not? We talked yeah. about time frame. And time's always very tricky for a lot of reasons, um, you know, sort of pre predictions. but because we're in the midst of such a really, really marked um, trajectory change, I'm trying to use another word other than shift, and we're, we're living it. And so anticipating or what we're feeling, I know a lot of people are feeling things, they're having dreams, they're, you know, getting perhaps pre precognitions or premonitions. And you talk to somebody, actually, you've talked to a, a few people, um, not to mention your own incredible um, uh, skill in tarot and astrology about where we are in this market shift and where we're going uh, in 2023 and beyond. That's what we're going to talk about over on the after show. So uh, in the meantime, in the meantime, go get the shift 
stories of the mystical underground reports, excuse me, reports from the mystical underground. I know it's available on Kindle right now. I just left you a review because it's that good, y'all. Oh, well, I you. hope it shows up on Amazon. I think it takes a couple of days, but I just left a review because it's really good. Don't you love stories, you guys? I love them. I think they're probably the most powerful conveyors of 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 insight and information is, is uh, stories. Who doesn't love uh, storytellers forever? Huh? That's why man has been a storyteller since. Absolutely. Now. Yeah, absolutely. So go get that book. As a matter of fact, I have another one. Just before I was saying that, Trish, I, I always say a little bit of a prayer or meditation, quiet time before I go on the air with my guests. And something said, go downstairs and pull this book, <laughs> Sensing the Future, Speaking of Precognition. I am going to resurrect. I say resurrect because I think I've already compiled this list of how many books have Rob and Trish McGregor written at this point, including one that yours truly had the pleasure of doing the audiobook for, and that is Phenomena, which we got to talk a little bit more another time. But I'm going to have a list of uh, incredible, if you want to build your library, you guys, with books on all the things we talk about on Higher Journeys, I'm going to have a list for you with links where you can get each and every one of these books because they're that good. How long have I known you guys at this point? How do I, remember- we- I can't remember. I think you guys reached out to me and wanted to be on the show yeah, right in early stages, but we're talking close to 10 years. I want to say it's hard true. to believe. And you've been writing since when? <laughs> Forever. <laughs> we're talking. I got my first novel published in 1985. Wow. So, a year before I started my career as a journalist. Yeah. Oh, we're yeah. really telling our age, aren't we? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, listen, in, any closing thoughts about the book or or any advice you would give to people as they navigate the shift? What would you say? Don't be afraid to speak up. Seriously. I think that's you know, because great. everybody benefits from your story. Everyone benefits whether they show it or not. I second that. Thank you for that, Trish. We'll leave it there. This was fun. Oh. I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I always love talking to you. You know that. It's a friend. We're we're talking to friends. Like I said, we talked for like two hours yesterday. So here we go. All right. We're going over to talk about what's coming next in this shift. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be heavy. It's It's been heavy. Could it be heavier? Question mark. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Listen, guys, we will see you next door, hopefully. (laughs) Help us out on Patreon. It really does help higher journeys. Uh, keep it going. So, and it's fun. We got a lot of good stuff over there starting, not starting, but continuing with this conversation with Trish McGregor. Trish, thank you so much, my love. Thank you. Turning up, we're going to go next door and okay. we'll talk to you soon, journeyers. I get up. <laughs> talk to you soon. Bye.